Chapter Seven of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two, by Havelock Ellis. Chapter Seven. Conclusions, Part Two. In such a case as this, one can do little more than advise the sufferer that, however painful his lot may be, it is not without its consolations, and that he would be best advised to pursue, as cheerfully as may be, the path that he has already long since marked out for himself. The invert sometimes fails to realize that for no man with high moral ideals, however normal he may be, is the conduct of life easy and that if the invert has to be satisfied with affection without passion, and to live a life of chastity, he is doing no more than thousands of normal men have done, voluntarily and contentedly. As to hypnotism in such a case as this, it is altogether unreasonable to expect that suggestion will supplant the deeply rooted organic impulses that have grown up during a lifetime. We may thus conclude that in the treatment of inversion, the most satisfactory result is usually obtained when it is possible, by direct and indirect methods, to reduce the sexual hyperesthesia which frequently exists, and by psychic methods to refine and spiritualize the inverted impulse, so that the invert's natural perversion may not become a cause of acquired perversity in others. The invert is not only the victim of his own abnormal obsession, he is the victim of social hostility. We must seek to distinguish the part in his sufferings due to these two causes. When I review the cases I have brought forward, and the mental history of inverts I have known, I am inclined to say that if we can enable an invert to be healthy, self-restrained and self-respecting, we have often done better than to convert him into the mere feeble simulacrum of a normal man. An appeal to the pederastia of the best Greek days and the dignity, temperance, even chastity which it involved, will sometimes find a ready response in the emotional, enthusiastic nature of the congenital invert. Plato's dialogues have frequently been found a source of great help and consolation by inverts. The manly love, celebrated by Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass, although it may be of more doubtful value for general use, furnishes a wholesome and robust ideal to the invert who is insensitive to normal ideals. Among recent books, Ioleus, An Anthology of Friendship, edited by Edward Carpenter, may be recommended. A similar book in German, of a more extended character, is Lieblingmine und Freudesliebe in der Weltliteratur, edited by Elisa von Kupfer. Mention may also be made of the Freundschaft, 1912, of Baron von Gleichen Russwurm, a sort of literary history of friendship, without specific reference to homosexuality, although many writers of inverted tendency are introduced. Platon's Tagebücher are notable as the diary of an invert of high character and ideals. The volumes of the Jahrbuch für sexuelle Schwissenstufen contain many studies bearing on the ideal and aesthetic aspects of homosexuality. Various modern poets of high ability have given expression to emotions of exalted or passionate friendship toward individuals of the same sex, whether or not such friendship can properly be termed homosexual. It is scarcely necessary to refer to In Memoriam, in which Tennyson enshrined his affection for his early friend Arthur Hallam, 
and developed a picture of the universe on the basis of that affection. The poems of Edward Crackcroft Lefroy are notable, and Mr. John Gambrill Nicholson has privately issued several volumes of verse, A Chaplet of Southernwood, A Garland of Lad's Love, etc., showing delicate charm combined with high technical skill. Some books, mainly or entirely written in prose, may fairly be included in the same group. Such are In the Key of Blue, by John Eddington Simmons, and The Memoirs of Arthur Hamilton, published anonymously by a well-known author, A.C. Benson, in which on somewhat platonic lines the idea is worked out that the individual sufferer must pass from the love of one fair form to the love of abstract beauty, and from the contemplation of his own suffering to the consideration of the roots of all human suffering. As regards the modern poetic literature of feminine homosexuality, there is probably nothing to put beside the various volumes, pathetic in their brave simplicity and sincerity, of René Vivien, see before, page 200. Some other feminine singers of homosexuality have cautiously thrown a veil of heterosexuality over their songs. Novels of a more or less definitely homosexual tone are now very numerous in English, French, German, and other languages. In English, the homosexuality is for the most part veiled, and the narrative deals largely with school life and boys, in order that the emotional and romantic character of the relations described may appear more natural. Thus, Tim, an anonymously published book by H. O. Sturgis, 1891, describes the devotion of a boy to an older boy at Eton, and his death at an early age. Jasper Tristram, by A. W. Clark, 1899, again, is a well-written story of a schoolboy friendship of homosexual tone. A boy is represented as feeling attraction to boys who are like girls, and a girl became attractive to the hero because she is like a boy, and recalls her brother, whom he had formerly loved. The Garden God, A Tale of Two Boys, by Forrest Reed, 1905, is another rather similar book, in its way a charming and delicately written idyll. Imre, A Memorandum, 1906, by Xavier Maine, the pseudonym of an American author who has also written The Intersexes, privately issued at Naples, is a book of a different class, representing the frankly homosexual passion of two mutually attracted men, an Englishman who is supposed to write the story, and a Hungarian officer. It embodies a notable narrative of homosexual development which is probably more or less real. In French there are a number of novels dealing with homosexuality, sometimes sympathetically, sometimes with artistic indifference, sometimes satirically. André Guide, in Le Moraliste and other books, Rachilde, Madame Vallette, Willy, in the well-known Claudine series, may be mentioned, among other writers of more or less distinction, who have once or oftener dealt with homosexuality. Special reference should be made to the Belgian author Georg Eekhout, whose Escalvigor, prosecuted at Bruges on its publication, is a book of special power. The homosexual stories of Esbach, of which Lélu, 1902, is considered the best, are of a romantic and sentimental character. Lucien, 1910, by Binet Valmer, is a penetrating and scarcely sympathetic study of inversion. Nortal's Les Adolescents Passionnés, already mentioned on page 325, 
is a notably intimate and precise study of homosexuality in French schools. It would be easy to mention many others. In Germany, during recent years, many novels of homosexual character have been published. They are not usually, it would seem, of high literary character, but are sometimes notable as being more or less disguised narratives of real fact. Baudis, Aus eines Mannes Mädchenjahren, is said to be a faithful autobiography. Der Neue Werther, eine hellenische Passionsgeschichte, by Narcissus, 1902, is also said to be authentic. Another book that may be mentioned is Konradin's Ein junger Platos, Aus dem Leben eines Endbeistes, 1914. The German belletristic literature of homosexuality, as well as that of other countries, will be found adequately summarized and criticized by Numa Praetorius in the volumes of the Jahrbuch für sexuelle Schüssenstufen. See also Hirschfeld's Die Homosexualität, pages 47 and 1018 and further. It is by some such method of self-treatment as this that most of the more highly intelligent men and women whose histories I have already briefly recorded have at last slowly and instinctively reached a condition of relative health and peace, both physical and moral. The method of self-restraint and self-culture, without self-repression, seems to be the most rational method of dealing with sexual inversion when that condition is really organic and deeply rooted. It is better that a man should be enabled to make the best of his own strong natural instincts with all their disadvantages than that he should be unsexed and perverted, crushed into a position which he has no natural aptitude to occupy. As both Rafalovich and Ferré have insisted, it is the ideal of chastity, rather than of normal sexuality, which the congenital invert should hold before his eyes. He may not have in him the making of l'homme moyen sensuel, he may have in him the making of a saint. What good work in the world the inverted may do is shown by the historical examples of distinguished inverts, and, while it is certainly true that these considerations apply chiefly to the finer-grained natures, the histories I have brought together suffice to show that such natures constitute a considerable proportion of inverts. The helplessly gross sexual appetite cannot thus be influenced, but that remains true whether the appetite is homosexual or heterosexual, and nothing is gained by enabling it to feed on women as well as on men. A strictly ascetic life, it need scarcely be said, is with difficulty possible for all persons, either homosexual or heterosexual. It is, however, outside the province of the physician to recommend his inverted patients to live according to their homosexual impulses, even when those impulses seem to be natural to the person displaying them. The most that the physician is entitled to do, it seems to me, is to present the situation clearly, and leave to the patient the decision for which he must himself accept the responsibility. Forel goes so far as to say that he sees no reason why inverts should not build cities of their own and marry each other if they so please, since they can do no harm to normal adults, while children can be protected from them. Such notions are, however, too far removed from our existing social conventions to be worth serious consideration. The standpoint here taken up, it may be remarked, by no means denies to the invert a right to the fulfilment of his impulses. Numa Praetorius remarks, it would seem justly, that while the invert must properly be warned against unnatural sexual license, and while those who are capable of continence do well to preserve it, 
To deny all right to sexual activity to the invert merely causes those inverts who are incapable of self-control to throw recklessly aside all restraints. Zeitschrift für sexuelle Schüssenstufen, Volume 8, 1906, page 726. The invert has the right to sexual indulgence, it may be, but he has also the duty to accept the full responsibility for his own actions, and the necessity to recognize the present attitude of the society he lives in. He cannot be advised to set himself in violent opposition to that society. The world will not be a tolerable place for pronounced inverts until they are better understood, and that will involve a radical change in general and even medical opinion. An inverted physician, of high character and successful in his profession, writes to me on this point, quote, the first and easiest thing to do, it seems to me, is to convince the medical profession that we unfortunate people are not only as sane, but as moral as our normal brothers, and that we are even more alive to the supreme necessity of self-control, necessary from every point of view, than they. It is not license we want, but justice. It is the cruelty and prejudice of convention which we wish to abolish not the proper and just indignation of society with crimes against the social order. We want to make it possible for us to satisfy our inborn instincts, which are not concerned essentially with sexual acts, so-called, alone, without thereby becoming criminals. One of us, who would, under any circumstances, seduce a person of his own sex of immature age, and particularly one whose sexual complexion was unknown, deserves the severe punishment which would be meted out to a normal person who did the same to a young girl, but no more. While, so long as no public offence is given, there should be no penalty or obloquy, whatever, attached to sexual acts committed with full consent between mature persons. These acts may or may not be wrong and immoral, just as sexual acts between mature persons of different sexes may or may not be wrong or immoral but in neither case has the law any concern, and public opinion should make no distinction between the two. It is in the highest degree important that it should be clearly understood that we want no relaxation of moral obligations. At present, we suffer an inconceivably cruel wrong. End quote. We have always to remember, and there is indeed no possibility of forgetting, that the question of homosexuality is a social question. Within certain limits, the gratification of the normal sexual impulse, even outside marriage, arouses no general or profound indignation, and is regarded as a private matter. Rightly or wrongly, the gratification of the homosexual impulse is regarded as a public matter. This attitude is more or less exactly reflected in the law. Thus it happens that whenever a man is openly detected in a homosexual act, however exemplary his life may previously have been, however admirable it may still be in all other relations, every ordinary normal citizen, however licentious and pleasure-loving his own life may be, feels it a moral duty to regard the offender as hopelessly damned and to help in hounding him out of society. At very brief intervals, cases occur, and without reaching the newspapers are more or less widely known, in which distinguished men in various fields, not seldom clergymen, suddenly disappear from the country, or commit suicide, in consequence of some such exposure, or the threat of it. It is probable that many obscure tragedies could find their explanation in a homosexual cause. 
some of the various tragic ways in which homosexual passions are revealed to society may be illustrated by the following communication from a correspondent not himself inverted who here narrates cases that came under his observation in various parts of the united states the cases referred to will be known to many but i have disguised the names of persons and places Quote, at the age of fourteen i was a chorister at blank church whose choirmaster an englishman named m w m was an accomplished man seemingly a perfect gentleman and a devout churchman he never seemed to care for the society of ladies never mingled much with the men but sought companionship with the choristers of my age he frequently visited at the homes of his favourites to tea and when he asked the parents consent for george's or frank's company on an excursion or to the theatre and then to spend the night with him such request was invariably granted i shall ever remember my first night with him he began by fondling and caressing me quieting my alarm by assurances of not hurting me and after invoking me to secrecy and with promises of many future pleasures i consented to his desire or passion which he seemed to satisfy by an attempt at fellatio was this depravity i would say no after reading his subsequent confession found in his room after his death by suicide this was brought about by his two intimate relations with a rector's son who contracted st vitus's dance and in the delirium of a fever that followed from nervous exhaustion told of him and his doings a thorough investigation took place and m fled a broken-hearted and disgraced man who as the result of remorse relentless persecution and exposure through several years ended his life by drowning himself in his confession he spoke of having been raised under a very strong moral restraint and having lived an exemplary life with the exception of this strange desire that his will-power could not control the next case is that of c h he came of an old family of brainy men who have and do yet occupy prominent places in the pulpit and the bar and was himself a gifted young attorney i knew him intimately as for six years he was a close neighbour and we were associated in lodge work he was an effeminate little fellow height five feet two inches weighed one hundred and five pounds very near-sighted and he had a light voice not a treble or falsetto but still a voice that detracted materially from the beautiful rhetoric that flowed from his lips he had served his country as its representative in the legislature and had received the nomination for senator over a hard-fought political battle the last canvas and speeches were made at a town which was in consequence crowded that night h had to occupy a room with a stranger named e a travelling salesman there were two beds in this room mr e on the following day told several people that during the night he was awakened by h who had come over to his bed and had his mouth on his person and that he had threatened to kick him out of the room but that h pleaded with him and fell on his knees and swore that he had been overcome by a passion that he had heretofore controlled and begged of him not to expose him these facts coming to the notice of his opponents within twenty-four hours they hastened to take advantage of it by placarding h as a second oscar wilde and stating the facts as far as decency and the law allowed h's friends came to him and gave him one of two alternatives if guilty either to kill himself or leave that section for ever if not guilty to slay his traducer e h affirmed his innocence and in company with two friends c and j took the train for blank 
Learning there that E was at a town twelve miles east, they hired a vast livery and drove over land. They found E at the station, awaiting the arrival of a train. H, with a pistol, strode forward, and in his excitement said, "'You exposed me, did you?' Being near-sighted, his aim proved wide of the mark. E sprang forward and grappled with H for possession of the pistol, and was fired upon by C and J, who shot him in the back. He expired in a few minutes, his last statement being to the effect that H was guilty as accused. H, C, and J were sentenced to the penitentiary for life. During my six years' acquaintance with H, I knew of nothing derogatory to his character, nor has anyone ever come forward to say that on any other occasion he ever displayed this weakness. I know his early life had a pure atmosphere, as he was an only child and the idol of both his parents, who built high their hopes of his future success, and who survived this disgrace, but are broken-hearted. End of chapter 7, part 2